Hello, and welcome to the initial recording of This Wooden O, presented by Rude Grooms. My name is Daniel Kemper. And I am Monty. Today's episode, and it's alcohol, is uh, brought to you by Single Cut. Well, not brought to you by. Brought to you by but that's Rude what, Grooms Budgets for buying Single yeah. Cut for you to buy our shirts. <laughs> Wait, okay. So, we have no idea what we're doing yet. Nope. Is there? Do, should we do a hard cut for when the podcast part starts and the like exclusive stream stuff ends? So I think what we'll do, I like, I like the idea of just having like once we go live, it's just us having a conversation, and then we put in like the intro and outro stuff separate. Like this okay. week on the like this week on the pod, we talked about blah 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 blah. blah. And now cool. you know, enjoy the episode. Awesome. And then, yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. So are we in it? I think we're in it. I guess we're doing the okay. real thing now. <laughs> Shout out to Kara Arena. Who oh, yes. did the music for this show, who's brilliant, who will be on the show uh, at a later date. We're trying to lock that down because she's always working as well as she should be. So I was thinking um, before I got over here, this has been the longest amount of time that you and I have not seen each other in like <laughs> five months. It's been very painful. And it's only been like a week. Yeah. It's been insane. I have, um, I've kind of not known what to do with my November, to be honest, because I have all of this free time that I haven't really had since April. Wow. And it's, yeah, because it's been, it's been casting for Romeo and Juliet. Right. And then it was memorizing for Romeo and Juliet. <sighs> and then it was Romeo and Juliet. And then the postmortem and then the changeling. And it wasn't until like maybe the first, halfway through the first week of November where I was just like, Oh, you mean I get to just go home after work? But it's been it's been real nice. I um I was talking with uh, some people last week, and I also put it up on uh, on social media. I fell into like a Star Wars happiness paradox. I saw this over on the your weekend. Facebook. It was so lovely. Like I had like the best problem to have because I was like. The Mandalorian is out on Disney Plus, which I caved and got Disney Plus just because I heard The Mandalorian was so, so good. And it is. And it really is. Like, it's so good, you guys. But um, I got Disney Plus to watch The Mandalorian on the same week that the new Star Wars game came out. Like, Jedi Fallen Order came out in the same week, and I started playing that and watching The Mandalorian. And I was like... I've been playing so much Jedi Fallen Order that I haven't been able to watch The Mandalorian, but watching The Mandalorian means I have to stop playing Jedi Fallen Order. And I was like, I'm caught between a wonderful thing over here and a wonderful thing over there. And I'm sitting there like, this is the best problem to have. I uh, I had to drive from New York to Texas last week. Oh, Jesus, why? Because the car that we had up here for Romeo and Juliet, the Changeling, mm. belongs mm -hmm. to my family. And I had to finally get it back to them. But on the drive back, which I did in two days, because you know, did you just not good. sleep? Um, I slept for four hours, which is more than I had in the past three months. That's hardcore. But the whole way, I finished listening to the first of the new Thrawn books mm. and listened to the entirety mm. of the second of love the new it. Thrawn books. Love it. Love where it, love Thrawn it, love teams it. up with Vader. Nice. And I 
have not turned on my PS4 in a year. Mm-hmm. But yesterday, I went to Best Buy uh-huh. and bought Fallen Order. Yeah. And the first thing I did when I arrived home today from the airport yes! was put it in my PlayStation. What did you think? Tell me. Tell me I thoughts. I played a grand total of 13 minutes, but I think I'm in love. Right? Yeah. No, that's... Here's the thing. It only gets better. <laughs> like, it only gets better. And I... um. I was really curious because all of the pre-reviews that I had seen were like, this game is not what you think. Mm. It is not going to be something like a hack and slash, like the Force Unleashed, where you're just like a superhero walking through the whole thing. They're like, it is much more of a platforming adventure game. Yeah. And it actually requires forethought, like planning and precision. The best way I can describe it, for those of you who are familiar with the video game world, it is the perfect mashup of Tomb Raider or Uncharted and Dark Souls, Mm. but in the Star Wars universe. It's very much based on like parrying and blocking and dodging and then like knowing when your opportunity is to strike, but then if you do so at an inopportune time, the game will punish you for it. Oh, wow. But once you get the hang of the mechanics of the game, it is actually really, really satisfying when you go into a difficult encounter and then make it through by the like by the skin of your teeth, you're just like, okay. Great. What level are you playing at? I'm playing on Jedi Master, so like next to the hardest difficulty, okay. the one right under Grandmaster. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm just doing Jedi Knight. That's and fair. I feel like I should have just done story mode because again, I haven't played a video game in a year, <laughs> and the last time I played a video game. It was just the Doctor Who levels of Lego Dimensions because that's the entire oh, no. reason I own a gaming system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna, it'll be, it'll be interesting. I would actually really, I would be really curious to like watch you play because um, most of the people that I've talked to about it are just like, if they're not like super hardcore gamers, they're the kind of people who get super involved in a Star Wars game whenever yeah, it yeah, comes yeah. out. I've been, but I've been really, I've been really enjoying it, and like the Mandalorian is just so good. Oh, it's so good. One of the things that I love about Mandalorian is that it never slows down. And yet it is so slow the whole time, which is what I love about it. I know. But like when it gets to the end of the episode and they're at the credit screen, I'm like, wait, that's it? No. But what happens next? And it is very rare nowadays that I'm ever left with a TV show being like, what happens next? Because you can sort of feel when the episode is coming to an end. You can start to feel when it's like, when it's reaching its resolution. But The Mandalorian seems like they are just giving you installments of one single story like they know what the end point is yeah. but they are not setting you up with cliffhangers yeah. it's just like here's where we're going and here's where we stop for today each episode truly feels like a chapter yeah, and yeah, not yeah. their own entity and exactly I feel like as great as serialized storytelling has become on television the structure and formula is still so constant from episode to episode yeah that with mandalorian the fact that there was no cliffhanger at the end of episode two mm-hmm. but it ju- the story just like stopped was actually more shocking than the twist that I was expecting to come. It's like the opposite of the Darth Maul hologram in Solo. I still haven't se- I can't bring myself to see that movie. I just, I really can't. You know what? We should do a live watch along for oh this God. one now. All right, I'll do of it. Your, of your first time watching it. I'll do it. 
if you're gonna put the camera on my face though, like understand that it's gonna be this face like the whole time. For those of you listening, you can't see because this is an audio medium. But like, let me I'm, describe. So his his hand is gently cradling his face, mm-hmm. but it's in the opposite direction from what's comfortable, mm-hmm. and so there's an innate tension and an innate pain, and yep. his his jaw is tensing, his lips are pulling back, his mm-hmm. eyes are girding themselves to weather a sandstorm, even though he's wearing glasses. It really is the image of reticence. The image of reticence. Correct. I like the the imagery of the sandstorm, too. That was nice. Uh, now that we have all the Star Wars talk out of the way, leading into, <laughs> that is like... by no means all no, the Star Wars talk. No, it's not at all. But, like, <laughs> leading into what I wanted to talk about today, I wanted to talk about, since it's our first episode and it's we're doing something new, but like I said at the top of the show, we have been moving... Yeah, actually, sorry to interrupt, but mm-hmm. what is this? What is what? This thing that we're doing right now. You mean in the like in the larger sense or the No, I mean I just I'm just sitting here drinking a beer and talking to you. I'm not oh, quite yeah. sure what this podcast is supposed to be. Yeah. So essentially we just want to keep hanging out with each other and drinking, but then if we can find a way for us to highlight the work of the amazing people that we work with, then like let's put some microphones and a camera in here. If we're just gonna talk about this stuff anyway. That sounds like a great idea. Yeah. I'm really glad I signed up for this. Yeah. But so like we were talking about a top of show how we have really been going, going, going uh, for myself since April. I think for you, it's much longer than that. And part of the reason that this show came about is we were having a conversation about what to do next. Mm-hmm. We were gearing up to do the Halloween show, but then it was sort of like we need a breather because we've been going for so long. And that idea of momentum, like Mm -hmm. knowing when to keep going, knowing when to pull back, uh, is something that has been like a recurring theme, I feel like, through most of this year. So I just wanted to like sit down and talk about what that looks like. Mm. When do you know you have it on your side? When do you know that it's like it might necessarily be time to pull back? When do you know that you have to do a thing. You have yeah. to go forward even when you're not particularly ready for it. Right. I feel like that's the easiest thing for me to share an opinion on, which really? is always. Always to which part? The going, the stopping, or not feeling no, ready uh, but doing it anyway? How do you know when to go forward when you don't feel ready for it? Mm. I remember when we were first starting, and I was in London talking to a good friend of mine uh, named Warren Rusher, and mm-hmm. he was like, how the hell did you guys get this going so fast? And it was just like, you just set a deadline and tell people you're doing it and then you don't have an excuse to get out of it. That's real. And I feel like that's been a lesson that's very hard to learn but keeps recurring in my life is it's very easy to have plans and hopes and desires, Mm -hmm. but putting yourself actually on the line to deliver to me has proved to be the key to actually doing it rather than sitting and talking about it. What do you think is the thing that makes you want to commit to the decision in that way and to telling people. Because there are some people, I feel like, who will go in the opposite direction right. where if they're not 100% sure, right. they won't tell people. So what is it What is it for you that like puts that drive in your brain where it's like, if I tell people, then it has to happen? I don't know. I mean, I think it is just experience. Like once you learn that lesson of, oh, of the time, it will get done, Mm -hmm. no matter how impossible it seems. I mean, it requires a huge amount of trust and willingness to not sleep and do manual labor and Mm. 
get it done if there's no other way to, to get there. Whatever it takes kind and of mentality. I, I don't know where that comes from other than maybe just a horrific fear of being laughed at by other people. Yeah, I get that. For me personally, my parents could not have been too wild, two more different people. Mm. But I think one of the things that they both had in common was that they were incredibly stubborn. You know, wildly capable people, both of them, and unbelievably intelligent. Yeah. And so when you are a person who is both capable and intelligent, I think there's something in you that's just like, if I have the idea to do this thing, mm. I trust enough in my skill set that it can happen. Right. And so when I was younger, my parents were both on the kick of, you know, you can do anything you put your mind to. You can, like, if you're willing to work for it and if you're willing to commit mm -hmm. to it, you can make a thing happen. Mm. So for me, I think in my bones, don't like the idea of setting my mind to something and not being able to make the thing happen. Interesting. So really it just comes down to I'm just stubborn. This then is I'm conversations gonna, yeah. are awesome because now I have a very different thought. Oh, tell me. Based on, so <laughs> I've been I'm trying to change a lot of life habits, you know, early 30s. It's like, oh, great. All those things about our 20s that are fun and wild are like now problems that you have to address as an adult. What do you mean you can't stay out and have Greek salad pizza at five o'clock in the morning? <laughs> that you can always do. <laughs> but I've found getting myself to drink enough water every day yeah. is so much harder than doing the changeling on two weeks notice and putting it together. It's connected to the, the people that we bring in because once you have them attached, you can't fail or hmm. else you've just screwed those people over. Mm. Just having those relationships in place means that if I don't do it, I'm not just going to be laughed at for myself, mm -hmm. but I'll also like be leaving a wake of destruction in the trust that other people put in the work that we're doing. The broader of a base that is, the more trust that's put in us, the more fuel there is to be like, not only do we have to get this done, but this has to be even better than it has a right to be. That makes a lot of sense to me. Something I've been realizing, speaking of like, turning older and like getting into your 30s, I'm starting to realize the older I get, the thing that I am starting to value the most in my day-to-day -day life is my time. I can never get the time back that I spend with people or even the time that I spend with myself. And so I found that I've become much more intentional hmm. with who gets my time and who doesn't. And so... I start to think about that for myself, but also I don't want anybody to ever feel like their time is being wasted. Oh, that yeah. That we're ever taking away the one resource that they can't get back. And so going back to the, the idea of momentum, the decision to make the changeling happen was right after the Romeo and Juliet postmortem. And we were saying, if we can get these venues, we need to make sure that we have a plan in place because the turnaround is going to be so short. Yeah. And most importantly, we have to have people who know the kind of work that we're doing and then also people who are going to jump all the way yeah. in. Honestly, part of the reason that The Changeling went over so well is because our cast was fearless. I think that's 100% of the reason. Absolutely 
fearless, like jumped in to the deep end head first. We didn't really have time in the process to wonder whether or not it was actually going to work. It was so much more of a, well, the plane is in the air. How do we right. build it? Once you're on the hook for it, you're past the point of, can we do this? It's now, how? How, how does it happen? But I feel like in, when it's not a collaborative environment like this, I can't get myself to do it. So for you, it really is just that there are other people who are depending on me to make this happen. And I cannot let those people down. So that is yeah. where the, that's where the, the drive comes from. I feel way more comfortable singing in a chorus. <laughs> that's fascinating to me. The collective is what drives you as an individual. So then how do you focus or how do you keep that momentum if it's just you? Is there, is there a thing that you found that works for you? Uh, no, if anyone has a solution to that, please email it to me, <laughs> Montgomery at rudegrooms.com. Yeah, yeah. What about you? Have, do you have a, you could be hard-headed, towards unproductive means, True. right? So that, that quality is not inherently gonna make you get things done. Oh no, there are, you're absolutely right. There are days where I have been decidedly, prodigiously unproductive. Right. I'm just like, I'm going to do nothing. Right. I refuse to actually do anything productive or in any way contribute to society today. Would you please at some point come to my house and force me <laughs> to have a day like that? It's wonderful. I usually do it on Sundays. I'll show up on like, here's what I'll do. It'll be a random Sunday. You won't even know when it'll happen. I'll just show up in Queens. I'll knock on the door with like a six pack at 1130 in the morning. And it's just like, what are you doing? Watching all seven Star Wars movies in a row? Great. Sit down. It's like, no, I've got to write grant proposals. That sounds like a weird way to watch Star Wars. It doesn't sound like you'll be able to focus that way. I think you'll have to leave that for later. What if I write a grant proposal to pay us to watch all seven Star Wars movies during a day? No. When I say prodigiously unproductive, I mean prodigiously unproductive. I'm already uncomfortable. <laughs> In terms of like, how do you self-start when there's nobody holding you accountable, when mm. it's just you? What I like to do... You like to have commitments to other people. I like to have commitments to myself. And the way that I do that is I write it down and put it on paper. And then I will put it usually somewhere in my room where I cannot ignore it. I was listening to an interview a while back with Anna Marie Cox. And she said, I don't really believe in New Year's resolutions, but what I really like are New Year's intentions. Mm. Or like, these are the things that I want to do with my year. So at the beginning of every year, what I've started doing I will write down a list of intentions. I'm like, this year, I want to make more art than I did last year. Yeah. Or I want to go on more auditions than I did last year. I want to start making new projects this year. I want to take up... One of the things that I have written down specifically is like, I want to find ways to take up space mm. in a positive and meaningful way. That's beautiful. But so for me, if I write it down and I have to look at it every day... It holds me accountable to what is in my head, the best version of myself. It's so funny because I actually found, I got more and more into writing down tasks and goals and calendars. That began a spiral of like these giant lists. I have like seven different apps mm -hmm. and I have a, a dry erase thing that's yeah. in my office. Mm -hmm. I have a to-do list thing on the, I have, I have them everywhere. And I keep finding ones from years ago and all of these thousands of things that I 
wanted or needed to accomplish and didn't. Somehow that like built a system of me being okay with letting myself down. Hmm. And so now it's like really, really hard to, to overcome. I'm so used to making a commit to myself and breaking it. Well, see, the, I think the difference is when I'm, when I'm talking about these things that I write down, there's no deadline that's involved in these. If I want to go on more auditions this year yeah. than I did last year. Let's say last year, for example, if I went on 100 auditions last year, if this year I say my intention is to go on more auditions this year than I did last year, even if that means that I this year I only go on 105, you know, it is not major leaps and bounds, mm. but it's progress. And it depends on how you look at it because some people will say like, oh, I only increased this part of my life by 5%. Right. Or you can say like, I increased this part of my life by 5% in one year. And so... I do feel like deadlines when it comes to personal accountability, not when it comes to other people, but I think with yes. personal accountability, I think deadlines are counterproductive because it it enforces an arbitrary marker on yourself. Mm. It happens when it happens. So I'm not going to beat myself up about it if it hasn't happened in three months. I uh, I took a class one time a year ago, and it was like the business of acting class. And there was this thing at the end where someone was like, what's your, you know, what's your five-year plan? Mm. What is your oh, five-year yeah. plan for your career? I've been and to those workshops. Yeah. And I just, I set down some stuff, but I was just like, I don't necessarily know if this is helpful. Right. At all, because, you know, you can set down the, you can set down the goal of like, you know, I only want to make a living off of acting work in two years. You can pound the pavement and go to every audition and look at every breakdown every year for five years. And if people are not looking for you, yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. Does not matter. The year of my highest income from acting, mm -hmm. I'm working at the level and it's in theater and it's like between the balance of this stuff. I'll be able to actually like just be a professional actor now. Mm -hmm. Followed by the year that no joke, including the first couple of years that I was out of college, yeah. I earned the least amount of money from acting in my adult life. And it's not like it's not like your skill or technique just dove off a cliff in that year. No, I mean yeah. I think it just has nothing to do with it. Yeah, it has nothing to do with it. The older I've gotten, the more I realize you really don't have any control over whether or not you book the job. The only thing you can control is how fully and how presently you show up in the yep. room. And I remember when I was in college and I heard that, I was just like, whatever. Right. I'm just going to be so good that they just, I'm going to blow them out of the water. It's like, we weren't looking for you, but now we are. And it's just like, no, that is not how it happens. And I even, I remember when it clicked for me was when we were, when we were casting for Romeo and Juliet, mm -hmm. because there were some people, oh, man. there were some people in that room who were mind-blowingly talented. Yeah. And I'm so mad that I can't give you the job because you're just not right for the world that we're building. And it is so frustrating. <laughs> It's so frustrating that that is the way that this that this industry works. And we're a two-year-old showcase company. So right. imagine how compounded that gets 
when you're the if Guthrie you're a or six Lincoln million Center. dollar yeah. a year company. Like, oh my god! But so that's when it was like that, and a series of other events like that where it's like, listen, the deadlines are not what's going to work for you. You've got to set intentions. You have to have things that you would like to do with the amount of time that you've given yourself and then just work from that space. Have you read the book Atomic Habits? No. The two things that really stuck with me are one, stop asking where do I want to be in a year and instead ask what type of person do I want to be? I love that. And that was super helpful. As I think that totally lines up with what you're talking about in terms of setting intentions rather than tasks. And then the other idea that was so interesting in this book to me is the idea that all you have to do to reach incredible improvement is make a 1% improvement every day. That makes sense. You compound improvement like an investment compounds interest. Mm -hmm. And he has all of these incredible studies from musicians to athletes to entrepreneurs, just always seeking What's the next small improvement we can make? Hmm. No, I like that idea. And it's it's the same idea that you hear a lot about uh, success or like how the way that people achieve success to the outside world. If someone seems to quote unquote come out of nowhere, right? it seems like it's just one gig and then they exploded. Yeah. It's like we see the one gig. What we don't see is the constantly going to classes and constantly showing up in rooms and constantly doing this and this and a series, excuse me, <laughs> a series of improvements mm. and just little things compounded over time. A big takeaway I had from it too is those small changes are happening regardless. Mm -hmm. It's whether you choose the small things that will bring you closer to the person you want to be in the next year. Mm -hmm or if you allow yourself to get so tunnel visioned that your subconscious or circumstances are making decisions for you that then become habitualized and now you're a person that's not even necessarily connected to the idea of where you want to be or who you want to be. That's an interesting point because that is momentum in one direction. Right? So then what do you what do you do when you recognize that? You realize that the momentum that's been building is taking you in a direction you don't necessarily want to go. How do you then course correct and goes like I'll keep you posted. <laughs> Cause that like, yeah, that's the that's the other that's the other side of it, right? Is like momentum can be a good or a bad thing. I think yeah. it really is. It's entirely about intention. Like, well, I mean, for example, when we were talking earlier in Changeling about are we going to do Twelfth Night again, mm -hmm. right? Like, I want to do that version of Twelfth Night every year for the rest of my life. Sure. And we had the momentum, conceivably, from Changeling that we could have continued to grow because the Halloween show this year grew even more than the summer show. Yeah, it did. But... Burnout, financial position. We could have dove forward again, set ourselves a deadline, and I'm sure we would have delivered. But what would that blind momentum have cost us that we wouldn't have yeah, seen? Yeah, I think that's I think that's entirely fair. Um, so that goes to the that goes to the other the other part of it. 
It's like you can have a lot of momentum going, but what is it that eventually happens or what's the calculus when you decide like we got to stop? We have to like we have to take a breather. We're coming into this turn too fast. Yes, we're going to like we're going to decrease in speed and maybe that means the other cyclists were in a cycling metaphor now, you know, something else, someone else has a chance to catch up to us. But in the face of what happens if we go into this too fast, we potentially mm-hmm. wipe out or suffer an injury mm-hmm. from which you cannot recover. Right. Or you don't get to, like, maybe you don't finish the race. Maybe you don't do as well as you would have liked Which, to. frankly, is what I think ends up killing most young theater companies. Hmm. I don't think it's not building enough momentum. I think it's not being able to put the brakes on. But how do you then, how do you make that decision when it seems like things are going so well and there's a part of your brain that's just like, no, if we just power through, we made it through these two, we can make it through this next one. We just got to like keep, we got to keep it moving and figure it out along the way. How- it's, such a, it's such a cop out, but just gut. There are things like the secret takes much ado where it's like, this is insane. Mm-hmm. We have no time. We have no donors, but this feels right. Mm-hmm. 90% of things are stacked and saying we probably shouldn't do this. But the 10% that are in our favor, our guts were like, go. And then for 12th night, I mean, we definitely had to have conversation about it, but it seemed like it was a pretty quick consensus once we understood the positions we mm-hmm. were in. Yeah. I don't know. It's not, a, it's not a helpful answer. Or maybe it is, because what is gut but trust in self? You, gotta, you have to know yourself. Yeah. You got to know what you're capable of. And I think part of it is like you got to be honest right. with yourself. Right. Because you can lie to yourself and be like, yeah, we'll figure this out. Like, we got this, when you really don't got this. Right. Um, right, because subconsciously all that gut might be is when it says yes, it's saying, I'll do whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. I'll give up my personal life. I will lose a few hundred dollars. I will lose nights of sleep, but I will get there. Mm-hmm. And the gut's like, no. And it's like, I'm not going to do that for you this time. That is, um, it's a hard one. And I don't know where that, that sense of your own limitations comes from. Because I'm thinking back to like 10 years ago, we were just out of college and I was just like, I can do anything. I don't care. I have no limits. I'm like, I'm not, the last thing I'm going to do is get in the way of myself. Do you know what I mean? Right. And now my understanding, my understanding of my own capabilities has become clearer where it's just like, yeah, you are a very capable person but you also have to take care of yourself. I remember um, our third year at Atlantic, I had a a teacher who said to me, it was Kristen Johnston actually, she was just like- For those of you listening who don't know, Atlantic is the Atlantic Theater Company. Yes. Which is one of the acting studios at NYU where Daniel and I went to school together. Right. Very recently. And, uh, oh yeah, like what, two years ago? I think we just graduated in May, didn't we? Like six months ago, Yeah, Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm actually, I got in early and uh, graduated <laughs> early, but I'm, uh, but, uh, no, I remember Kristen, uh, Kristen Johnson said to me, she was like, um, 
you are, she's like, you're a very talented, you're a very talented actor, but you are not going to get to do the kind of work that you want to do until you turn Mm -hmm. 30. And I didn't understand this at the time. She was like, you do not have enough of the world in you yet. You got to fail at some things. You got to really try and fail at some stuff. You've got to have, I never forget this. She was like, you've got to have your heart broken. Yeah. A couple of times. And she was like, and I don't just mean personally, like in your personal life. I'm not talking about like the people you date, but she was like, you got to have your heart broken. You have to know what it is to throw everything you have at something you want and still come up short. But then it did happen. And I think what was important to me is not the not the failing at the thing. It was the trying, the throwing yourself at it entirely, mm-hmm. still coming up short, and then continuing on yes. in spite of it. For the video production company that I run, mm-hmm. uh, do a lot of corporate work, and I shot a series of these five-minute interviews with people who are at the forefront of their industries but are like young professionals, like... You know, they mean like mid to late thirties when they say. Well, I mean late twenties as well, but like the thirty under thirties and the forty under forties. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And one of the things he kept asking was, "How do you get there in terms of performance?" And every single person, the one thing that was constant was perseverance. That makes so much sense to me because the idea that failure is the greatest teacher, mm-hmm. and even like in my in my day job as a chess teacher. When I take kids to tournaments, the one thing that is always a constant, no matter where I work, is kids only ever want to show me games that they win. And I'm my thing is like, I don't want to see games where you won. I don't want to see things where you did it right. I want to see games where you lost because you're going to learn to improve by studying your shortcomings and having somebody there to be like, all right, here is where you made the mistake. So here's how you recognize it so that if someone ever does it again, you know how to effectively counter. Your failures will tell you where you need to, where you've got to tighten up, where you've got to make the improvement, where you have to make those compounded incremental improvements. It's, I'm I'm such a bad Trekkie right now, but (laughs) the Maru Mm -hmm. in Star Trek, it's a test that you take at Starfleet Academy and it is impossible to win. You don't know that going in, but that's the whole point of it, is you're gonna lose. The idea that like this like huge main part of being trained to be a Starfleet officer is facing a failure that you can't avoid. Hmm. Right, that there is, there is no way to get through always winning because failure is required. I mean, I could, also, I could also see how that would really mess with people, that we're going to build a thing in which you are going to fail by design and there's nothing you can do about it. But I also think that that's emblematic of, that's emblematic of life and anything that you want to do, anything that you want to do of consequence. Kobayashi Maru. I Googled it. <laughs> I completely own it. I just could not sit here thinking about it anymore because I want to hear what Daniel's saying. But this, the idea that like, the idea of introducing unavoidable failure in a controlled environment mm. so that you get people used to the idea of like, sometimes this is going to happen. Well, isn't that just what rehearsal is? 
I mean, yes and no, because- The first three days of staging. I don't necessarily feel or look at that as failure. Like to me, the idea of the idea of failure is we have an objective and we do not like we fail to meet that objective. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's a failure to reach a goal or to meet an objective. That to me is yeah. what failure is. Not to like I don't see a sloppy rehearsal as a failure because I'm just like Unless your objective is clarity and storytelling. But you're not going to get clarity and storytelling off of one rehearsal. You're not going to get it in one. You're not going to get the show in one rehearsal. Even Romeo and Juliet, which I felt like was a dream. We didn't have that show at the first table read. We didn't. Um, there was no table read. What would you call it? A playthrough. Oh, Lord. Okay. We were at table. Were we at a table? No, we yeah, weren't. We were at a table. That the was after we did the playthrough. You mean where we tossed the like where we tossed the stuff around? No, where we got up and did the whole play on our feet. No, 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 no. I'm talking about like Oh, you weren't there for that one. No, I wasn't there for that. I'm talking you missed about the first Yeah, I'm talking about well, This is why you don't know that that run okay. was perfect. <laughs> I, I, maybe I'm being a little cheeky about it, but I okay. do think that like I actually think that rehearsal is all about failing. There are so many ways, particularly in the way that we work, right? Yeah. Where we're not we don't have a lot of blocking. We're not setting a lot of tactical choices. Like we're maybe honing in on some boundaries to clarify, but we still have a lot of freedom. So there are a lot of right choices and making a wrong choice, I feel like ends up being for me more helpful than making a right choice. Cause all that tells me is like, okay, that worked, but I don't necessarily know why, hmm. but if, but if I miss something, or I play something that's the opposite, like that defines the world of the play more clearly for me than my successes. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I look at rehearsal more of like experimenting in a lab. Mm. And it's sort of like we are trying to build, a, we're trying to find a way to make a light bulb. I think one of my favorite quotes about resilience and perseverance comes from Edison when they were asking him, like, they were like, you tried several thousand ways to invent a light bulb and you failed several thousand times to invent a light bulb. How did you keep going until you eventually found the right way? And he goes, whoa, stop. I did not fail. I just found 2,000 ways not, not to, to make, make a light bulb. bulb. And I think that's, I think that's what the difference is. It's like, right. if you're trying to find the show... If you make a choice that doesn't work in rehearsal, I don't consider that a failure. I just think of like, all right, we know not to go that way. I guess for me, maybe it's just failure has such a stigma that I feel like the moment that failure becomes essential, you still obviously want to succeed, but then it loses some of its power. And, and, and it, in a way, makes me feel braver and more able to fail boldly and therefore succeed boldly. I like that. I actually, I like that a lot. The idea that like, you're going to get it wrong. Yeah. It's baked in. There's nothing you can do. So if you're going to get it wrong anyway, why not just have fun with it? Well, and that there is value in that wrong. So I think if we, if we were to, if we were to crystallize, I think if we were to crystallize this into... And as succinct of a term as possible. Do you wanna, oh, do I'm, I'm done. I'm oh. dry. Well, then if we're going to move into wrap up, we have to have 
something fresh. Okay. Um, if we're wrapping up, I would like to close on a on a bourbon. So I think if we were going to going into the idea of wrapping up, I think if we were going to distill this conversation about like momentum and intention and knowing when to and when not to, I think, and I'm just going to freewheel it here, but you gotta you gotta know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm running right now out the door of my I own house. Have been holding that since you got up from the table, and I regret nothing. No, but in all um, in all seriousness, I think it really does come down to find people who will hold you accountable to intentions and goals that are reasonable for you to set. And I think you have to know what you're capable of. And I think you have to be brutally honest with yourself about your capacity to do a thing. When it comes to like a group activity, have people to hold you accountable. Yes. And then I think on an individual sense, I think what we gather from this conversation is find ways to find ways to hold yourself accountable, but also be kind to yourself. So this weekend mm-hmm. at the Shakespeare Intensive, we were incorporating our kind of work in original spirit rehearsal environments, if mm-hmm. not original practice. Yeah. And incorporating intimacy principles and intimacy work into theater as a whole, but specifically into work that's under-rehearsed, interactive, um, non-fourth wall, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And Ashley White, who was is, is one of the IGI certified intimacy directors in the country and was running it with us one of the things that she kept encouraging the actors to do was to work at the edge of their comfort zone, Mm -hmm. but to only step beyond it when they felt comfortable to do so. Interesting. And I feel like that's a a very similar thing with momentum. Like you need to know what your limits are, but that doesn't mean you have to limit yourself. Mm -hmm. And the other idea was the idea of, of containers. So setting up, if you have, let's say you have an extended scene between two lovers and it's not, there's, there's not anything that necessarily requires extensive choreography because it's going to be 14 minutes of them laying in bed together, but they're not doing anything. Mm-hmm. If you set up containers um, where it's mutually agreed upon that it's a safe and comfortable space for both actors, right? Like, let's say this was a container, right? That I can caress you in any way in this area. I'm not afraid that I'm going to trigger or offend you. You're not afraid that I'm going to grope you in some way you don't want to. But the idea that knowing your limits doesn't necessarily mean holding yourself back. I like that, actually. Know your limits, but don't hold yourself back. I think that's it. I think we got it. I Great. think that's it. I think we did Just it. Just solved all the world's we problems. We did it. We figured one. it out on the pilot. That's what episode one does. Just like Phantom Menace solves all no, the problems. No, 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 no. See, we had a nice moment, and then you ruined it with the Phantom Menace. Okay, thank you so much, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. uh, Thank you for tuning in to the pilot episode of This Wooden O, presented by Rude Grooms. Once again, uh, my name is Daniel Kemper. You can follow me on uh, Twitter and Instagram. 
all at the Daniel Kemper. I'm Montgomery Sutton. I'm on Twitter at Montgomery Sutto because my name is too long. And I'm on Instagram as Montgomery Sutton because I like Instagram better. Tune in for the next episode where, among other things, we are going to be talking about theater, the intersection of theater and activism with the unconscionably talented Annika Kumli, who will come uh, have a seat and have a chat with us on this would know. See what I did there? All oh, tied like in, right? Thank you so much, everybody. I'm gonna have a bourbon. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of This Wouldn't Know, hosted and produced by Daniel Kemper and Montgomery Sutton. Original music is by Kara Arena. This Wouldn't Know is brought to you by Rude Grooms, a Queens, New York-based theater company creating epically intimate theatrical experiences in public spaces, non-traditional venues, and new media. Learn more at rudegrooms.com or follow us on social media at Rude Grooms and at This Wouldn't Know.